Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. Tonight's gospel reading is a continuation of Luke chapter 2. We're just picking up right where we left off last week. Uh, The infant Jesus was in the temple with his parents, with the elderly prophets, Simeon and Anna, and now they're back at the temple in uh, verse 41 of chapter 2, but Jesus has grown up just a little bit. Luke 2, 41 through 52. Now, every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up, as usual, for the festival. When the festival was ended and they started to return, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming that he was in the group of travelers, they went a day's journey. Well, then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished and not in a good way. And his mother said to him, child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. And now, church, we have a decision to make about how to read the next lines because this is either Jesus at his Jesus-y best or this is a 12-year-old preteen talking back to his mother. He said to them, Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and humanity. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. It's, uh, <laughs> it's 40 years now since I was a 12-year-old, but the headspace of a 12-year-old is surprisingly easy to access even now. Maybe because I just spent a few days with my family of origin which was long enough to revert on some level to the kid, you know, that you once were in that system, bickering and laughing and provoking and eye-rolling and wondering with a mixture of sadness and relief how it can be that the people who know you best in this world don't really know you at all. At 12, You think you're practically grown. You've started to imagine moving through the world as an agent, an actor, rather than one who is pushed or pulled from one moment to another. 
You've got ideas and opinions that did not first generate in your parents' brain and take up residence in yours. Your body wants what it wants and has begun making those wants known, sometimes urgently. The grown-ups around you, you notice, are starting to count on you more, shouldering you with more responsibility, but at the same time, they still hold all the decision-making power. It's frustrating, to say the least, to be 12. And at 12, it's not entirely clear how to best articulate the acceleration of changes in your mind and body, your heart and soul, how you have up to this point been click-clacking methodically up the incline of the very steep track of your childhood, but how at any moment your little buggy will be pulled over the apex of this roller coaster mountain and gravity will kick in and you will be flying, man, flying down the other side with such speed and adrenaline that the only way to express yourself will be in guttural yelps of fear and excitement, which the grown-ups will call a tantrum, imagining you still a child, which in some ways you still are, you realize as you relax into the steady click-clack of the next mountain climb, both dreading and excited by the next inevitable rush of hormone and maturity just over the next peak. It's hard to be 12. And parenting a 12-year-old through those ups and downs, the back and forthness of tween life, Lord have mercy. And I imagine that the Lord does have mercy, given that the Lord was 12 once and gave his family of origin at least one collective heart attack that we know about and probably many more migraines that we don't. I don't know how Luke dug up this story about the child Jesus that none of the other gospelers knew or included, but it's a gift. It's a gift to kids and parents to remember that the blessed eight pound, six ounce, tiny little newborn baby Jesus did not instantly become a smart, strapping 30 year old who independently makes his way to the river to be baptized as a sign of his religious awakening. Instead, Thanks to Luke, we can say for sure, Jesus spends the intervening years pretty ordinarily just growing up. His mind and body, his heart and soul becoming more and more mature in a human context about which we can say quite a lot given how little time the Gospels actually dedicate to that reality. Now, what I'm going to say next, I want to say within the context of something I learned from hard experience a long time ago and a promise that grew out of that learning. When I was a very, very young pastor, I thought it was in my job description to dispense wisdom about every aspect of human life, and I had opinions about how kids should be raised. Please note, this was years before I had kids of my own. And so I learned through some really terrible experiences on both the giving and eventually the receiving ends of opinions about how parents should raise their kids, how unkind and unwise it is to imagine that anybody knows best 
for anybody else's child. At some point, I resolved not to be among the tongue-clucking, side-eye-giving neighbors of Mary and Joseph, who no doubt had things to say when the couple's firstborn child turned up missing on the way home from Jerusalem. Listen, parenting is the hardest thing that any of us has ever tried to do. It brings to the front all of our insecurities and weaknesses. It stirs up the shit from our own childhoods. It offers few rewards in the short term. And it is as expensive as fuck. So, I'm going to say a few things now about Jesus growing up and about his parents, but I'm going to try to say them in a way that does not hang out to dry any parent who is doing their best every daggum day and still feels like they're not doing enough or doing it quite right. Just hold on with me here for a minute and see if I can make good on that promise. Here's something so obvious from this story about Jesus' childhood that we just might miss it. His parents took him to church. Okay, not church, because that's anachronistic and really dumb. But his family had a religious habit. They had a commitment to a community of faith and a calendar of faithful practice that included their kids. This story about 12-year-old Jesus takes place during an annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem, a trip that Luke says they took every year as usual to celebrate Passover in the holy city. In that part of the world, at that time in history, a trip from Jerusalem to Galilee would have been time-consuming and expensive. Some neighbors would do it, but not all of them. It was an expression of deep devotion built on a foundation of regular religious practice. The daily prayers, the keeping of Sabbath rest, the weekly attendance at a local synagogue for the reading of scripture, and the singing of psalms. A little bit later in Luke's gospel, when grown-up Jesus has begun his ministry, he'll make a stop in his hometown. Luke 4, 16 tells us when he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. So we learn for a while he's carried on his parents' habit of religious practice every year, as usual, Luke says. But over time, the Sabbath day observance of worship and study in the synagogue becomes his custom. The habit of his family becomes the habit of himself. When he goes missing, in the spring of his 13th year, his parents don't notice at first because this annual pilgrimage was a trip they always made with family and friends whom they trusted. Their religious observance, in other words, was saturated with relationships. They prayed and sang, worshiped and traveled, ate and drank with beloved neighbors they had known their whole lives. How much simpler it must have been for their family to practice religiously together when it was reinforced by their social circle, where space was made for their kids, 
where families befriended families and kids formed their own friendships within their religious context. The story thus becomes a prefiguring of the community of believers that grown-up Jesus would someday promise to all his followers a safety net of church friends who would do life together in such an intimate way that they would call themselves family, parents and siblings to each other, replacing the relationships one forfeited by following him. When he told his disciples that with him they would find family and field, love and livelihood, both in this world and in the world to come, I don't think he was inventing that out of whole cloth. I think he was recalling the Nazareth synagogue, his childhood upbringing in a religious community that road tripped together and took care of each other's kids, mostly, until that one year, one precocious 12-year-old decided he just needed a little more time in the temple. This long-lasting pandemic has carved out deep channels of grief in my heart, as I know it has in yours. But for me, none deeper than the sorrow I feel for the children of our church and their parents. I have talked before with some of you about the deferred maintenance that the pandemic has pressed on us. In our case, it's not a roof in need of replacing or HVAC units in need of repair. The joy of renting the big red barn is partly about not having to take responsibility for any of that stuff. No, our deferred maintenance at Galileo Church is about deeper things than property concerns. It's about the unresolved grief for all the deaths that we have experienced these last couple years, most without proper funerals, all without any real way to mourn, and no way to mourn collectively the hundreds of thousands whose lives have been lost to this virus alone. And I've talked about the deferred maintenance of our pre-pandemic friendships. Those friendships have essentially been put on hold. We can't carve out enough space to conversate casually and safely or to pour out our hearts to each other without a mask on, or just to sing at the top of our lungs hymns or a karaoke, unmasked and unselfconscious. But among all the deferrals, among all the stoppages and postponements of our life together these last couple years, the one I grieve most is the loss of two years and counting of our children's faith formation. That is to say, I don't think it is intended for any individual parent or family to raise their kids as disciples of Jesus alone. When the church can't meet, we surrender our collective responsibility to grow up kids who feel at home in the company of believers. Kids who know to a certainty that they are loved by God because they are loved by God's people. Kids who know that they have oodles of adults who look out for them and think they're amazing and worry about them when they're not around. I'm saying I think Jesus had that. Not just parents who washed his face with their very own spit on the way to synagogue every Saturday, 
but a whole collection of grown-ups who knew his name and his pronouns and his food allergies and his hobbies and whether he was grounded or not on any given day, which he definitely was following that Jerusalem temple stay over. I'm going to be really honest here and say that youth and kids ministry in the ways you might have seen it in other churches has never been a real priority at Galileo Church. We've had a bunch of people employed for that work, and they've all been amazing, but we just really don't do a lot of gee whiz programming that makes Galileo the funnest experience any kid has ever had. We've never really had enough kids to plan a lot of age-specific activities. We have a hard time finding curriculum that honors our commitments to do justice for LGBTQ people and to celebrate neurodiversity and takes the Bible seriously but not literally and helps all our kids take joy in following Jesus into a life of world-changing service. If you know of one, let me know. We would buy it. But what we have had at Galileo Church over these eight years is a commitment to never leave kids out to always assume that they are in the room and that they are as essential to our life together as any grown-up human. We invite our kids to the table of our Lord for communion. We make space in this place for them to move around instead of insisting that somehow religious observance requires sitting very, very still. We don't send kids out to do kid-specific stuff during the important parts of worship. We don't condescend by changing our language in their hearing, though we understand if parents threaten their own kids with grounding if they repeat certain words they've heard at church. We learn our kids' names around here. And if they ask to be called something different later on, we learn that. And we apologize when we mess up and forget. We ask them if they want a hug, always respectful of their no, even if they have said yes a hundred Sundays before. We try in every way to offer our kids the same joy of community, of church friends that many of us are experiencing in this place. except when we can't, because fucking COVID. So here are a couple questions I've been asking myself, thinking about 12-year-old Jesus traveling with his family of origin and their family of choice, defying them all on the cusp of his coming adulthood, staying in Jerusalem without permission, snarky about his reasons, but then coming home without protest to finish his growing up. One question is, what would we be doing right now as a church? Yes, while we're online only. Yes, while we have postponed kids' gatherings yet again. Yes, in a church full of spiritual refugees who hardly know how to communicate faith to kids without messing it up because it was so messed up when it was communicated to us. What would we be doing right now? What could we be doing right now so that our families with kids, the parents among us, can say to their children, just wait 
Just wait till our church gets back together. Just wait. It's going to be amazing. And you are going to understand so much better why I keep telling you that God's love is the realest thing in the world. What would we be doing right now, church, to make that true? To put ourselves forward all together as a promise, as a guarantee that parents could make to their kids that as soon as it is safe for us to sing and dance and pray and party and tell stories and remember Jesus with all our might, unhindered and unbound, they will know to a certainty that they are loved, loved by us and by God and that they will be happy to be here and maybe even want to stay a little while longer. And another question I've been asking myself, what wonders are our kids gonna show us when the time finally comes? Snarky preteen Jesus was also pretty amazing, right? In his curiosity, in his understanding, in the way he comported himself among the teachers of the tradition, I mean, that could be because he was Jesus. Or it could just be that kids be like that sometimes. Simultaneously, a pain in the ass and also wise beyond their years, showing us things about God that we started missing when we grew up. See, I want them back in our collective life for their sake, partly, but for all our sakes. Really? These are questions I don't have answers to, church. Maybe for now, we just register the heartache that our kids are suffering for lack of a faith community, for lack of a social circle that they can pray with and party with. And maybe saying it out loud is one way that we reinforce our longing for it to change. And maybe longing for it to change is one of the ways we start to prepare for it to change and lend ourselves to that change and commit our resources and our energy toward that change. From our hearts to God's ear, we need our kids back and soon. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, Go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.